Amen. Thank you, Jim. Well, good morning again. We're continuing in our series on the book of Revelation. We are seven weeks into a 10-week series. We're going to wrap up on Easter Sunday. Um, Before I get going, I want to remind all the guys that next Sunday is our next men's breakfast. We always have a breakfast on Sunday morning, um, 8 o'clock. Is that what we were hunting for? 8.15, executive decision. I want to sleep in a little bit more. So 8.15 next Sunday morning. I hope that you can come out. It's $5 at the door. Kids eat free. Um, I wanted to start this morning, our text is going to be Revelation chapter 9, verses 20 through 21. We'll read that here in just a moment, but I want to start with just a little bit of a retracing some of our steps, um, and I want to show you an outline here of the book of Revelation. So this will kind of help you, because we're deep into the, into the series, we're deep into the book of Revelation at this point, this will just help you get a sense of where we are in terms of the book. So the book starts out in the opening chapters with the introduction and the plot. You identify the seven churches of Revelation. That's Revelation 1 through 3, Revelation chapters 1 through 3. And then from there, it jumps into uh, the judgments. These judgments begin. And so the judgments begin uh, with the scroll uh, being identified, and the scroll's got seven seals on it. And each time at Jesus, he takes the scroll out of the hand of God the Father, and he begins to open up the seals on this scroll. And there's seven of these seals. And each time he opens one of them up, there's different um, judgment is, is poured out upon the earth, upon the people of Israel um, for the rejection of the Lord Jesus. And then we see that um, when he gets to the seventh seal and he breaks that open, but that's what we're going to see today, there are seven trumpets that appear. So everybody kind of thinks when he gets to the seventh seal, maybe the judgments are done. No, there's seven more that are going to come. So he breaks the seventh seal, seven trumpets appear. They blow into these seven trumpets, the angels do. And each time they blow into a trumpet, more judgments appear. When they get down to the seventh trumpet, uh, they blow into the seventh trumpet. All of a sudden, seven bowls appear, and then those bowls are poured out. And so you can kind of see how this forms the body of the book of Revelation. So you got the introductory lines at the beginning. We've got some concluding remarks. But most of the book of Revelation deals with the pouring out of these judgments, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls. Today, we're going to cover the seven trumpets, okay? Our text comes from Revelation chapter 9. If you would, I'm going to ask for you to stand to your feet for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be reading verses 20 and 21, just a couple verses here. Revelation chapter 9, let's begin reading at verse 20. Here we go. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. You may be seated. All right, so that's kind of the tail end of all of these seal, all of these trumpets being blown on. We're going to get to that in a second. What I want to do is I want to go back to the breaking of the seventh seal, which then these seven trumpets appear. Okay, so let's start at chapter 8 and verse 1. It says, when the Lamb Jesus opened the seventh seal, so he breaks open the seventh seal, it says there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. You say, Gordon, what does that mean? Well, it means that there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Um, it means that things grew quiet in heaven, and I, I suppose that's not something that happens all that often. And so heaven was aware, instantaneously aware, that with the breaking of the seventh seal, that something really serious, something really magnanimous was about ready to happen. Um, so Jesus has in his hand the scroll of judgment. It has the seven seals. He breaks the seventh seal, um, and then heaven grows quiet. Verse 2, then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. So the breaking of the seventh seal, then seven trumpets appear, and then they're going to start blowing on these seven trumpets. Skip down to verse 6. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow on those trumpets. Um, And verse 7, here's the first of those trumpet blasts. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon where? 
upon the earth. Now, we talked about last week, I've got a map for you here of the Fertile Crescent. We talked about how that word in the Greek is the word gain, and that word gain is translated in your New Testament as the word earth. It refers to a specific piece of the globe, a specific piece of dirt. The word gain in Greek means dirt or soil, and it's soil specifically that is good for farming. It's arable soil. And so this little green blob that you see on the map behind me designates the area in this part of the world that is good for farming. It's the gain. It's the part of that area that is is good for, for, for growing crops in. And so historians today, archaeologists today, refer to this area as the fertile crescent because it, sh- it forms a crescent moon shape, right? It firm- forms, form- forms a crescent moon shape across that part of the world, and so they call that the fertile crescent. Back in Jesus' day, they called that the gain. So when you hear the word earth in your New Testament, not in the Old Testament, in your New Testament translations, that's the word gain that's been translated there, and it's always referring to this fertile crescent, to this specific piece of the whole globe. Um, so middle of verse 7, it says, A third of the earth, or the gain, was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. You say, Gordon, did that happen in 70 AD with the destruction of Israel, with the Jewish war that the Jews were going up against Rome? Um, yes, it did. I'm quoting here from Josephus, he's our historian. He was the eyewitness. He was the guy who was inside the city of Jerusalem when it was under siege, was captured by the Romans, and then he went to work for the Romans uh, writing the history of the Jewish people, writing the histories and chronicles of all of these wars. And so Josephus writes about this. He says that the Romans cut down all the trees that were in the country that adjoined to the city and that for 90 furlongs round about. So for miles and miles and miles around the city of Jerusalem, all, this, all the trees, everything that could possibly be burned was cut down, was used for fires, was, was, was decimated. He talks about the policies of General Vespasian and his son Titus the two guys that led the Roman legions against the Jewish people in this war. And here was their policy, that they would set fire not only to the city of Jerusalem itself, but also to the villas and to the small cities. So all the cities surrounding the city of Jerusalem, he set on fire as well. He goes on to say that Galilee was all over filled with fire and blood. So the policy of Vespasian, the general of the Roman army, the policy of his son, General Titus, was to do what Sherman did on his march to the sea was to burn down everything in their path. And that's what they did when they went into Jerusalem in this war with Jerusalem leading up to the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Friends, by the time that the Romans were done uh, marching on Israel, by the time that they had done all their destruction for the Jewish revolt that had happened back in 66, I believe it was. um, Don't quote me on that. Google it. You can tell me at the end of the service. Um, But when they were done, it took over 200 years for the population of that area to begin to recover, for that area to begin to become inhabitable again. Verse 8 says, The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. Verse 9, A third of the living creatures in the sea died. So in the province of Israel, a third of the living sea creatures died. Remember that we're talking about the gain here. We're talking about that particular fertile crescent part of the world. We're not talking about the global world. We're talking about the gain. So a third of the living creatures in the sea died. A third of the ships were destroyed. Verse 10, here comes trumpet blast number three. The third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. Verse 11, the name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, that is undrinkable, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. So trumpet blast number two and trumpet blast number three both deal with water sources around Israel. And they say that these water sources became filled with blood. They said that these water sources became bitter. They became undrinkable. Um, You can imagine when you don't have a water source, what happens to the local population? 
people die. I mean, you can't go without water for three days. You can go without food for a long time, but you can't go without water for more than about three days, and then you begin to hallucinate, and the world becomes uh, strange. Uh, so let's turn again to um, our historian Josephus to see what he has to say about all of this. Um, on one occasion, he writes about a great sea battle that took place on the Sea of Galilee. He writes, but as many of these was, as but as many of these were repulsed when they were getting ashore as were killed by the darts upon the lake. So you can imagine the Roman boats going out in the Sea of Galilee, coming up against the little Jewish fishermen boats, and they're shooting arrows at one another. They're throwing spears at one another across the water, and tens of thousands, okay, this is not just a couple hundred guys, tens of thousands of Jewish soldiers would have died there, and he says, along the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. He goes on to say, the Romans leaped out of their vessels and destroyed a great many more upon the land. One might then see the lake all bloody and full of dead bodies. Not a couple of hundred out there bobbing in the water, but thousands, tens of thousands of dead bodies. Remember that the population of Israel at this particular point in time was somewhere around 8 million. And that it, the, the Romans aren't interested in going in there and re, rehabilita, rehabilitating, tithing, rehabilitating the Jewish people. They're going in there to eliminate the Jewish people, to create, to, to uh, commit genocide against the Jewish people. So the, the Sea of Galilee would have just been flowing with all these dead bodies. He goes on to say, for not one of the Jews escaped, and a terrible stink, and a very sad sight there was on the following days over that country, for as for the shores, they were full of shipwrecks and of dead bodies all swelled up. One more quote from Josephus, he says, not only was the land filled with slaughter, but also the Jordan River, he said, could not even be passed, couldn't even get over the Jordan River, he says, for reason of the dead bodies that were in it. There was nobody taking the time out to go dig graves, even, if, even mass graves. The Romans were just slaughtering people, and they were going on their way to the next town. And everywhere they went, blood flowed. Everywhere they went, bodies lay, corpses everywhere. You can imagine the scene. And then you've got bodies, he goes on to talk about Josephus, about bodies flowed, floating down the Jordan River on their way to the Dead Sea. Skip on down to verse 13. It says, Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly over my head. And the eagle cried out, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth and to the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about ready to blow. So the eagle is anticipating, we've got three more trumpet blasts to go here. And he calls each one of those a woe. You say, Gordon, what is a woe? Is that how you stop a horse? No, that's a W-O-A or W-H-O-A. We're talking about a W-O-E. A W-O-E is a, is, a, is a gloom and doom greeting. It's when you hear somebody say, uh-oh. You hear somebody say, uh-oh, from the back seat, you know something bad just happened, right? Somebody's back there about ready to toss their lunch. Um, so that's, that's like, it's like an uh-oh is about ready to happen. And so that's what a, this woe is. The eagle cried out, woe, 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 three more, to those who dwell on the gain. That's right, to those who dwell on the earth. So remember, we're talking about the specific part of land. We're not talking about the whole globe. We're talking about the specific targeted piece of the earth. Okay, let's move forward to chapter 9. Revelation chapter 9 and verse 1. Here comes the first of the WOEs, which is trumpet blast number 5. Verse 1 says, And the fifth angel blew on his trumpet, verse 2. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, that's hell, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Verse 3. And then from the smoke came locusts on the earth into the gain, and they were given power like the power of scorpions. End of verse 4. They were told to harm only those who do not have the seal of God on their forehead. We had talked in earlier weeks about the seal was the, were, was the Holy Spirit, those who are Christians. 
So this trumpet blast is supposed to overshoot or is supposed to leave be uh, this, is this particular plague that's coming, this particular onrush of destruction that's coming is supposed to leave be those who are believers. However, verse 5, uh, they were allowed to torment the non-believers for five months, but not to kill them, that is, not kill them yet. Verse 6, and in those days, people will, in those five months, people will seek death, and they will not, and they will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In April of 70 AD, the Germans, the, golly, I got my words all tangled up. Um, the Romans laid siege to the city of Jerusalem in April of 70 AD. That siege lasted for five months, all the way till the end of August, early part of September. What did the scriptures say in verse 5 about how long all of this stuff was supposed to last? Five months, exactly how long the siege of Jerusalem lasted. It started in April, ended the last week of August, early September. Speaking about the conditions inside of the city during the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD, here's what Josephus talks about. He says that there were groups of marauders who were going around, uh, to, uh, going around through the city and were knocking on doors and were busting through doors and they were seeking out stashes of corn, stashes of food that people had piled up to, to, to get through this siege. He writes that the madness of the seditious did also increase together with their famine and both those miseries were every day inflamed more and more. Again, remember, this is what's happening inside of the city during the siege. They invented terrible methods of torment, that is the marauders, to discover where any food was. And this was done when these tormentors were themselves not hungry. He goes on to talk more about these roaming gangs. He says, they fought against each other while they trod upon the dead bodies as they lay heaped one upon another. They omitted no method of torment or of barbarity. Friends, does that sound like five months of torture? Uh, does that sound like Revelation chapter 9 and verse 5 fulfilled? I think it does. Um, it says, verse 5, that they were allowed to torment the non-believers for five months, but not to kill them. You know, I'm sure the scene inside of the city was much like what verse 6 predicts, that in those days people will seek death and they will not find it. They will long to die but death will flee from them. The famine had grown so severe over the course of five months. People were literally starving to death over the course of that five months. Um, verse 13, last set of verses here. I'm going to read several. It says, Then the sixth angel, so we're at woe number six. Um, then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Verse 15. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, the year were released to kill a third of mankind. Verse thir uh, last verse, verse 16. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. Um, let's do a quick algebraic equation here. I got a slide for you. And it shows this number twice 10,000 times 10,000. Now 10,000 times 10,000 is 100 million, right? Yeah, you knew that. So 100 million, and then twice of that, twice of 100 million is 200 million. And what is it that there's 200 million of? Back to the verse, mounted troops. And so see, people who are skeptics of the Bible say, there's no way that this possibly could have all happened in 70 AD because the Romans, there were only about 500,000 active duty troops serving the Roman military forces back then. We're talking about, I mean, that's a far cry from the 200 million that John says that he saw. Other skeptics of the Bible say, look, the Bible's unreliable. Uh, there's only, you know, can't even be trusted. Uh, there, there could never be 200 million troops. I mean, China, the largest standing army in the world, has 2.3 million active duty soldiers. The United States has 1.3 active duty 
uh, soldiers um, at, our, at our disposal. So you add all that up, and again, we're a far cry from the 200 million that John says that he saw. And so there are skeptics of the Bible that say, look, this is just a bunch of symbolism. The Bible can't be trusted. Well, hang on there just a second there, Kimosabi. Back to our historian Josephus, who was, again, boots on the ground inside of the city of Jerusalem at the time of the siege. Here's what Josephus has to say. Um, he writes about certain events that take place above, in the sky above Jerusalem. Josephus writes, A certain prodigious and incredible phenomena appeared. I suppose the account of it would seem to be a fable, were it not related by those that saw it, and were not the events that followed it of so considerable nature as to deserve such signals. For before sun setting, chariots and troops of soldiers in their armor were seen running among clouds and surrounding other cities. Tacitus, another historian of that era, writes, In the sky appeared a vision of armies in conflict or glittering armor. See, the people on the ground saw this. Josephus looked up into the sky and saw this. He saw mounted troops coming at one another. And Paul writes what this is about. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, he says, Look, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We don't wrestle against principalities. Instead, we wrestle against principalities, against rulers, and the darkness of this world. He said, we, re we wrestle against cosmic powers over this present evil age and the spiritual forces in high places. Paul's very aware of the fact that there's an unseen reality of demonic spiritual forces, and there's an unseen reality of angels that are operating in our physical world. So what was it that Josephus was privileged to see? What was it that the, the, the citizens of Jerusalem were privileged to see? They were able to see some, some spiritual warfare going on, literally, over the city of Jerusalem. 200 million mounted troops going at one another is what they saw. Friends, that was no human army that John saw. All right, well, that's our treatment of the seven trumpets for today. And so that means it's time for us to ask the question. We ask every week around here, what difference does all this make in my life? You say, Gordon, 200 million troops. I mean, yeah, obviously there's not even anywhere close to that in, in our day and age. So what difference does any of this make to my life today? Um, well, that's a really great question. Let me see if we can answer that. I've done my best to describe for you some of the conditions inside of the city of Jerusalem and in the surrounding areas as this war was unfolding between the Jewish people and between the Romans. And I think that we would all agree that these were some really bad times for Israel, right? Y'all would agree with that? This was, this was horrendous stuff that was going on. Uh, extreme famine, uh, wars raging all around, bodies floating down the river, bodies floating in the Dead Sea, bodies floating in the Sea of Galilee, massive stink all over the area with these bloated bodies, a constant threat of one's life. Everyone's been displaced from their home. There's no food sources to be found. The supermarkets are all closed. Neighbors are stealing from neighbors, every man for himself. And the thought occurred to me this week as I was studying through this, what if I was a dad who was living back in this particular time period and I had children that I was trying to protect and provide for and a wife who I was trying to protect and I was trying to provide for? I mean, this had to have been literally hell on earth for these people who are going through this. War was coming at them from every side. And if you happen to still be surviving and, that, and Sherman hadn't marched his way to your town yet, you knew that it was coming sooner or later. But here's what really shocks me as I read through this passage and I, and I read through some of the histories of what was going on in 70 AD and I realize uh, all that stuff that was happening to the Jewish people. Here's what really shocks me. Let's go back to those verses that we read at the beginning of the sermon today. 
Revelation chapter 9, verse 20. It says, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, so the ones who were left, did not repent of the works of their hands. So they've already experienced seven seals breaking and all the bad stuff that came from that. They've experienced trumpet blast number one, two, three, four, five, up through six. We get to number six, and then this verse occurs, and it says, look, they've experienced all this hell on earth, and they're still, it says, not repentant. They're still not sorry for the sins that they've been committing, for the things that they've been doing. Verse 21 says, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. In other words, they just kept doing this stuff, despite all of the tragedy that was being heaped on them, despite all of the judgment that they were experiencing, they still did not repent, not even a whisper of regret, not even. Instead, they just plunged all the more deeper into their sinful behavior. Would you not agree that this is strange? I mean, at what point does God have to put it onto somebody before they say, okay, 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 I cry uncle here, right? God, I'm going to do things your way. But they never came around. The Jewish people never came around, never repented. They just went deeper and deeper and deeper into their sin. They were hunkered down in their sin. They were hunkered down in their defiance. Their hearts were hard and callous. And because of that, they were lost. Paul, the writer of Romans, puts it this way, Romans 1 and 28. He says, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Now, that was the Jewish people in 70 AD, and that was their story, and that's how things ended for them back then. But that doesn't necessarily have to be how my story ends, how your story ends. You say, well, Gordon, that's really good news to know that my story doesn't have to end up the way their story ended up, but I mean, how do I get there? How, does that, how do I ensure that my story doesn't become their story, that I don't get lost in my sin, that I don't get hardened and calloused in my heart toward the sin in my life? How do I make sure of that? Well, I got two things for you real quick. Two steps that you can take to prevent your heart from growing hard and callous. Number one is to practice repentance, to practice repentance. Remember, this is what the Jewish people did not do. They didn't think that they were doing anything wrong. Their hearts had become so hardened, their consciences had become so seared that they just didn't think that they were doing anything wrong. And so they didn't want to admit that they were doing anything wrong. They didn't want to acknowledge that Jesus was, was their Lord. Instead, they wanted to sin. Instead, they wanted their sexual immorality. Instead, they wanted their sorceries. Friends, there is a right way to live and there is a wrong way to live, and we don't set the rules for that. Who does? God does. God sets the rules for what's right and what's wrong. We simply have the choice then to live by God's rules or not. We simply have the choice of obedience or disobedience. And so when we violate those rules, there needs to be a recognition on our part that what we've done was wrong. And friends, that's where repentance comes in. That's where a godly sorrow, a recognition that we have wounded the Savior, that we have done something against who God is. God is holy, right? That's the song of heaven. They sing it all the time. Holy, 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 right? They're up there singing it now. And so um, when we violate God's laws, we allow unrighteousness, we allow unholiness, to come into our life, and by doing that, we separate ourselves from God. We, we, we put uh, <clears throat> disunity between us and Him. Um, wrong is wrong. It doesn't matter what the reasons or the circumstances were. Repentance means an admissions of guilt. Repentance means a taking of responsibility of what it was that we did. That means including a willingness to go and make amends for what we've done, if that's possible, and if God's leading us to do that. 
I'm not sugarcoating it or softening it with words. Friends, I can remember back when I was in uh, seminary, I cheated on one of my final exams my last semester uh, at, in seminary, and it bugged me so badly. I was about ready to head off and, into church work and do ministry and all this kind of stuff, and it was just, I, it wasn't a big cheat, but it was a little cheat, but it was a cheat nevertheless. Looked at some notes. It was a take-home test. I looked at some notes halfway through it because I couldn't remember what the answer were on my notes, right? So I looked at my notes, and it just sat on me and sat on me and bugged me for a couple of days. And then finally, I said, you know what? I need to go, I need to go make this right, even if it means I don't get to graduate on time. Because I didn't want to go off into my life and go off into ministry and leave this part of my life behind me that was, God was leading me to say, hey, you know what? There's something going on here that's unfinished that you need to go take care of. So I went and sat down in the professor's office, and I said, look, this is what I've done. And he said, okay, that's good. I appreciate you being here. Um, read this book, write me a report, and we'll call it even. And I said, oh, that's wonderful, right? <laughs> and so I read that book, and I wrote him a report, handed it in the next day, and uh, we were square again. But um, friends, that's what repentance is. It's not just recognizing, that, hey, that was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. Oh, God, will you please forgive me? It's a willingness to go and take full responsibility to make it right if, it's, if we're able to. And if the Lord's leading us to, and I, I mean, I, I'm not going to chase down everything I've ever done wrong and try to make amends for it, but when the Lord puts it on my heart, when the Lord puts it on your heart, friends, to go and make it right, that you following the course of that, friends, that's repentance. It's taking full responsibility for what you did, not just being sorry that you got caught, but making it right for those that you've um, done wrong by. Here's what the Bible says God will do in return. In fact, this comes from the author of the book of Revelation. John chapter 1, or 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, John writes, If we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, God takes our sin-stained heart and makes it spotless. Wipes our heart clean. And friends, that's what the Lord Jesus does for us when we repent. The Jewish people didn't want to do that, and their story ended up in the gutter. Yours doesn't have to. Make the decision to repent when sin comes into your life. Second thing that you can do to cure a hardened heart, step one is to practice repentance. Step two is to rebuild your dulled conscience, to rebuild your dulled conscience. Friends, when we are consistently engaged in sin, when we make sin a practice, the result is that our conscience gets seared. The result is that our conscience gets dulled, that we no longer can hear the voice of God speaking to us. We're just kind of get like God said in Romans chapter 1 and verse 28, that he just gave them over. He said, okay, if that's where you want to go, then I'm going to give you over. And that voice of conscience of the Holy Spirit pricking us and saying, look, you're heading into an area that's not pleasing to a holy God. That Friends, when we do that, um, our conscience is, it's a evidence that our conscience is dulled. And so it has to be rebuilt. It has to be reconstructed. You say, well, how do I do that? Well, we do that by saturating our mind with where truth comes from, right? We stand up for it every week around here, and we usually say something, didn't say it this morning, but we usually say something along the lines of, this is where truth comes from, right? It doesn't matter what other people think. It matters what God thinks. You don't have to wonder what he thinks. Has it been a little while since I said that? He wrote it down, right? He wrote it down. You don't have to wonder what God thinks. And so, friends, when we spend time with God's word, it rebuilds our conscience. It rebuilds the things that have been seared, the things that have been lost, the things that have been dulled, and it resharpens those edges. That's what God's Word does for us. The psalmist said in 119 in verse 9, he said, how does a young man 
keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word. Verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Friends, when we rebuild our conscience by learning God's truth, by reading the Bible, we enter into life with a, with a stronger conscience, with that sense inside of us that's going to check us when something comes our way, like cheating on a test, right? And says, hey, you know what? Shouldn't go there. That's wrong. Shouldn't do that. And so that Holy Spirit begins to stir up inside of us again. Okay, let's sum up. The Jewish people experienced hell on earth, but it wasn't because God did not like them. It's because they had rejected Jesus and were unrepentant about it. How can we avoid their story becoming our story? How can we keep our hearts from being calloused and hardened like theirs were? Two ways. Number one is to practice repentance. And that means taking full response, not just being sorry about what we did, but taking full responsibility for what we did. Number two is to rebuild our dulled conscience by regularly uh, encountering, regularly engaging the Word of God. Let's bow our heads together. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for talking to us today. We thank you for the opportunity uh, that we had to come here uh, to gather around your word, to be resharpened, to have our consciences pricked, Lord, to be reminded of the life that you want for us to live. Lord, as we gather around this table today to remember your broken body and to remember your shed blood, we ask that your Holy Spirit would stir in us. Uh, if there's some stuff that we've been involved in that has become a practice and it's unholy and it's not pleasing to you, God, we ask just in the quietness of these moments that you would stir in our hearts, Lord, that you would bring that godly sorrow to bear in our mind, in our heart, that we would desire something more than following the ways of this world, which, Lord, will ultimately lead into a ditch and which will ultimately lead to a story ending that we don't want any part of. So, Lord, may your Holy Spirit speak to us in the quietness of these moments of communion today. May we dedicate ourselves fresh and new to you, and may we say our resolve, Lord, to want to engage your word, to engage your truth. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.